session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Art of of Logic by Eugenia Chang, The Art of Logic in an Illogical World. Um, Again, one of those judging a book by its cover and its title seems interesting. I believe she's a mathematician um, and she, let's see, scientist, residence. Anyway, but yeah, so this book, she talks about looking at logic, but also I think from what I looked at the summaries and things, how we can combine Uh, logic, but also emotion or intuition, things of that sort. So looking forward to reading that book and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I will be talking about tonight is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. When Breath Becomes Air, Paul Kalanithi. And, um, you know, a lot of books get a reaction when I post them. This one got a lot of a reaction from people who had read it saying that it was very impactful for them. And I could see why a very powerful book, a very heavy book. One of the most common responses I also got is that I cried so much reading it. And I um, also did cry several times reading this book. And I'll talk about some of those moments or things that came up in this book. also want to thank my um, cousin and his wife, actually Isla, uh, she was the one that first recommended it to me. I'd seen it before, but she recommended it just a week ago and said uh, it was really good and that she and her husband, my cousin Pedram, had read it. They are both physicians, as is the author of the book, um, and thought it was very powerful, a beautiful, and a meaningful book. And it is all of those things. So um, even right now, I just said the author is a physician, but uh, sadly, he has passed. And this book, When Breath Becomes Air, uh, is essentially his uh, contribution or major contribution he made in the last year of his life. So it is more of a memoir um, where he talks about his life and what he has gone through starting. Uh, he does go into his childhood, but especially his training and then getting this diagnosis of lung cancer, which sadly uh, ends up taking his life. And it was very, I mean, heartbreaking. Just even there's a picture of him and his wife and their baby who was born, I think, about eight months before he passed, um, which is just heartbreaking to to see that picture, knowing that he is no longer alive. But this book is a lot about death. And something that I've talked about a lot this year, several of the books I've read have discuss this topic of death, that I think we can't understand our lives or take our lives as seriously as we need to unless we recognize and even embrace the reality of death. Uh, It sounds very dark, and it even seems like it's uh, paradoxical to think that death 
would make you enjoy life. No, we should just enjoy living. But really, if we don't recognize the reality of our death and truly the unpredictability of how long we have to live, I don't think we will take our time and value and cherish our time seriously enough. And so um, in this book, we get to delve into the mind of someone who is experiencing this the dying process. And I stopped myself as I was saying that because essentially um, all of us who are living are going through the dying process as well. It's part of life. Uh, and I'm reminded of the book I read earlier in the year by Irvin Yalom and his wife Marilyn Yalom, A Matter of Death and Life. And I think the reason they put it that way, death and life, is that really death really gives us value about life or helps us understand life. And so Paul Kalanithi had everything to live for. When we uh, you know, see him get his diagnosis, he talks about getting the diagnosis. He was near the end of his uh, fellowship, in the end of his residency in neurosurgery. So he was a neurosurgeon. And it, it's so heartbreaking because we see him, his whole life was essentially preparing to continue living in this way of being a neurosurgeon, a neuroscientist. He actually wanted to do both all these dreams he had, these aspirations that he had. And so it could feel like he finally was getting to that point where he would have to stop working so hard to get to his goal. And when he was approaching that goal, he got this diagnosis of lung cancer. Didn't know how long he would have to live. Again, true for all of us, but for him even more acutely, not knowing would he have a few months, a few years. Um, and, and sadly, he had, I think, two years from when he got the diagnosis until he passed. The book really, um, as I mentioned, it was very intense reading this book. So I read uh, you know, a book every week for the show, and they affect me in different ways. This was one of those that left me, uh, as I said, in tears several times, reflecting on things several times, thinking about life. And it's a uh, it could be tough sometimes going down those paths, thinking about, well, what is it all for? What is the meaning of life? And even does it have meaning? Is it meaningless? What are we doing this all all for? And um, I did have some of those existential, not crises, but reflections about life. What is the meaning? And reading this book was another reminder for me and why I wanted to, to talk about it in this way of taking our lives seriously as far as what we do with the time that we have. And we have to be proactive about that and conscious about that. Because if we just live life without thinking about what we're doing, we likely won't put the most important things in it. It's not just automatic. And so he talks about meaning. And one of the things he discusses in the book is doing things for others. And to me, that is one of the primary meanings of life. So as, as living beings, we do have, of course, this strong pull towards staying alive, taking care of ourselves, of course. That's there. But as humans and in living in this type of a world where survival, thankfully for many and most of us, can be fairly secure as far as having our everyday needs met, of course, the length of our life and all, lives and all of those things are unpredictable. I think we can recognize that what can make us feel like our life has meaning is how we um, impact the world and the lives of others. What are we doing 
for others when we reflect on our lives. That tends to give people meaning. When people help others, they rarely doubt the significance of what they are doing or that it was something good to be doing that. Um, and so we can see him dedicating his life to helping others, saving lives, prolonging lives, giving value to lives, and he, he, he didn't doubt the value in that. And so it's up to each of us to think about what is my meaning in life, as Viktor Frankl says in, in the book, um, Man's Search for Meaning. The meaning of life is not a question we ask of life, it's a question that life asks of us. What is going to be your meaning? And what I also think along with helping others, helping the world, leaving that type of an impact, is the impact we have on all of those around us day to day. You know, those beautiful moments of emotional intimacy and connection. Um, you know, in the book, this is one of the parts that made me very emotional is he and his wife decided um, while he was battling his the cancer to have a baby, something that they wanted to do and now they knew they might not have a chance to and that was of course something they talked about should we or should we not go ahead and do this and they agreed to do that and they had some medical assistance but they were able to get pregnant and have a baby um, and that scene when he is he is very sick he himself is very ill um, but he's in the hospital in the uh, room with his w wife Lucy as she is giving birth but he himself is physically in pain because of uh, he's fighting a disease and also, of course, the medications and treatments that he is on. Um, that part had me crying when you see him in that type of situation, but still being there. Um, his wife, at least some of the comments he makes, you can see, is aware of him and his condition. And, and I mean, amazingly in labor, giving birth, but also aware of him um, as well. And so they share this moment and the baby is born. Um, and, you know, they asked, do you want us to put her on your skin? But he's worried he is too cold because of what he's going through himself physically. So he says, no, I think I'm too cold. It won't be good for her. But they put the baby in blankets and, and hand the baby to him. And he gets to share that um, incredible moment, uh, which is, you know, beautiful, but also heartbreaking. Uh, and he didn't know how long he would have with her. And so we see him experiencing her trying to spend time but he's uh, really not doing well physically and so reading him share his experience as I mentioned um, to many friends as I read this it's heartbreaking but also beautiful and inspiring at the same time um, and so we see him not knowing how long he has it again it's interesting when I say that I every time I'm catching myself because that's the truth for all of us and that's why I'm emphasizing that that I hope we all recognize that our tendency is to take our life for granted. If we are not conscious of it, we just do what's comfortable and we don't recognize if we're living our lives consciously or not. And so I hope we can all think about that, reflect on that. I hope you'll read this book, When Breath Becomes Air, if you have not, I think many of you have, um, because I think it does refocus you and remind you, as it did for me, of that centrality of living a life of meaning that we would be proud of the life we've lived and would feel content by what we have devoted and dedicated our lives to. Sadly, he passed while really writing the book. 
he had essentially a manuscript um, uh, in his computer, but it was not something he himself got to edit and, and work on. But they were able to, with the help of editors and things and his wife, uh, create this this book based on everything he had worked on and written. And even the writing process, the, the epilogue or the afterword of the book is written by his wife, um, Lucy, or surviving wife. And she shares how even hard it was for him at times because of his fingers with the different treatments and the the battles he was having with the cancer to type on a keyboard and they had special gloves for him so he could type and, and do that. And so we can see how important it was for him to share this message. It's interesting, through his death, he gave even more meaning to his life and I think more meaning to our lives who read the book. Um, so it was his contribution. So interestingly, in talking about the meaning of life in this book, I think he was also expressing partially his meaning of life, that he was um, helping others to face death and to face their lives in a more conscious type of a way, which I think is quite quite beautiful. And so um, that was also a part of the book that had me in tears as she described his last days and those last months of his experience. They were around the holidays and him being sick and certain moments of them just sharing that, you know, I think he looks at her at one point and says something, this could be it, knowing that this could be their last time together. Or he himself talks about being at the hospital where he was working and people like, oh, I'll see you next week or next month, or uh, being at a, a reunion for his medical school saying, you know, they're saying, I'll see you in 10 years at the next reunion and him knowing that probably that, that won't be the case, which is quite heartbreaking. So as I mentioned, it's not a light book, but I don't think... Um, as he himself in a part of the book says that life is not meant to be lived in a sense, I'm definitely misquoting, but of limiting our suffering. Um, if we think about creating relationships, what we're essentially doing is, of course, we connect and we create something beautiful, but we're in effect always creating something that hurts if we lose it. We're creating a possibility to get hurt. Even having a child to me is what you're essentially doing in my mind is you're doing something beautiful and wonderful. You're doing a lot of things, but one of the things you're also doing is you're opening yourself up to the most painful relational thing you can go through, which is losing your child, for your child to die. And so what you are thinking is, in my estimation, is you're taking that risk that I think it's worth it. That although I know I can be hurt so much, I think that it's worth it. And I don't want to live a life that's based on reducing or eliminating my pain or suffering. I want to face life head on and give myself all of the experiences that I think are meaningful and important, knowing that often the ones that are most meaningful and the relationships that are the most meaningful are the ones that are the most painful to lose or if something were to happen to us. And so I think that's something quite beautiful to keep in mind. Um, you know, grieving, this is a quote from one of the books, I think it was from the Yalom book, something along the lines of, grieving is the price we pay for the relationships that we have. It's the weight of having those relationships. We um, grieve as strong as we love, essentially. And that's something important to keep in mind. Now, I'm going to read the last uh, paragraph of the book, which or paragraph of Paul Kalanithi's part himself. And it's him talking to his daughter and, you know, trying to think of, well, it's kind of sad because we think 
um, does she have any conscious memories of him? Because I think she was less than a year old when he passed. And based on what we think we know about memory and when memories are formed, we would think she does not have a conscious memory of him. But I think what I'll, I'll do in the next sections, I'll be talking about um, things related to the impact we leave in this world. And I'll talk about that in more detail, about uh, what it means to make people feel a certain way. But let me read you. This is uh, Paul Kalanithi in the end of When Breath Becomes Air. And he is essentially trying to give a message to his um, daughter. And he's saying, I don't know what, you know, he wanted to write a series of letters, but he thought, well, will she even understand when I'm 15 what I'm saying or what I'm talking about? And so he writes this. Uh, it's very beautiful. Um, I'll conclude the segment with this. So he says, basically saying, what could I say to you? And he says, that message is simple. When you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with the sated joy a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy does not, that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. And maybe it's a good time for a commercial break before I start to cry. Uh, let's go to commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about the very powerful, inspiring book, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. And uh, as I shared several times, it's through this, I think, embrace and encounter with death or recognizing our own death that we actually get closer to recognizing the meaning and the value of our lives. And... Um, I, I think right now I wanted to continue talking about that theme of meaning of life, of course, a very huge topic and not one that I have the answers to, but did want to share some of my thoughts on that and related to something I mentioned at the end of last segment when I was saying that it, it can be sad to think that because his baby was, I think, less than one when he passed, what memory um, does she have? of him is it is it conscious and can he she remember things that's one of the ways i think we impact people but i'm reminded of that quote uh, i do this a lot i quote people when i'm not 100 percent sure on it i think it's maya angelou where she says people might not they won't remember what you said but they'll remember how you made them feel and that quote does feel very right and it's actually very true in a lot of ways in the sense that when we think about people, when you say, oh, I kind of like that person, you might remember specific things that they have said to you or, you know, did, but it's really more of a feeling you have about them. And so that's how we, when we interact with one another or when we create relationships and connections, we create a type of feeling that people have when it comes to us. And, and I'll get to that in a bit. But so coming back to his daughter, um, I don't think she'll have a conscious memory of him holding her in his hospital bed, let's say, you know. Um, and so, you know, that maybe she won't be able to have a, a conscious memory of. But when we think about 
the brain, and this has made sense to me more in, in these last years as I, as I understand our brain more as a predicting machine rather than a thinking machine, um, we can recognize that when we interact with people, when they're babies, let's say, we are laying down a type of positive prediction or negative prediction about the world. And this is why it does make sense. I, w- I had a hard time with this, and I've talked about it on the show recently, because we'd say, well, you know, that first year of life is so critical. If we look at Eric Erickson, he talks about trust versus mistrust. And so I think, how can I create something like trust or the concept of trust, or if I should trust others or not, when I don't have memories of what has happened in that zero to one? So it was hard for me at times to reconcile that. How can we say you don't have any memories of it, but it affects you? Um, but it does make sense when we consider that the brain is a predicting machine. So if it is looking at its experiences or expecting, let's say, what to experience, well, it's going to be affected by what's happened before. So if people have been very warm, if when you were a baby, your needs were met in a very timely manner that made you feel good, you then now have this expectation or you're more likely to expect that the world is good. People are good. My needs will get taken care of. Or even if they don't for a little while, they will very soon. So when they don't, I can feel okay. So we can understand that although there might not be a conscious memory that I can say, oh, this happened specifically, it doesn't mean it doesn't leave an impact on that individual. And so all babies, even though um, we know they won't remember the things you did, they won't remember you holding them when they were an infant, but that warmth and connection and security that they give them will be within them and they carry that forward for the rest of their lives. And I think that's quite beautiful and powerful, but also a reminder of how significant how we treat everyone is, but of course, young ones. And it actually does remind me of, um, there is a, I've heard a Persian saying or a Persian, I don't know what you would call it, but something that parents sometimes do when their kids fall and they, let's say, get hurt, and they're crying, I've heard Persian parents say, uh, something like that, or essentially saying that you'll forget what happened right now, or uh, you won't remember what happened right now as a way of, really it's probably to calm themselves down or make themselves feel better, but they are trying to tell their child to not be sad because you won't remember this, which is kind of interesting in its own way. Maybe I won't uh, go too deep into analyzing it, but it is interesting in its own way. Um, But I I hate to break it to those parents, but that even though your child might not have a conscious memory of what happened, everything they experience is going to be part of who they are and how they live life. So if a child sadly experiences lots of physical pain when they're little, even if they don't remember what happened, we would expect that has an impact in how they feel and they, they approach the world. And so we can think of When we think of leaving our legacy in this world, when we think of leaving a mark on this world, I think it's interesting because we often think it has to be that we leave something that people see. We leave something that people can tangibly look at. And it doesn't mean those things aren't very important. They are. And I think actually this book that Paul Kalanithi wrote is a testament to that. He, in his last he didn't know how long it would be, but last years 
when he knew he was facing this crisis, one of the things he thought would be meaningful is to write a book to help others to, to take life more seriously, to be aware of the reality of their own death and hopefully live a more meaningful life. So it's not to say we, we shouldn't do those things. Absolutely, we should. But I think at times we also can get very caught up in when we people ask someone, how do you want to be remembered? Or what legacy do you want to live? Which I think could actually, to leave, which I think could be an important question to think about how you're living your life. But I often try to think of, well, it's more about the impact we're having in the world rather than just how it's remembered. And so this comes up to me, let's say if you're someone who's coming up with a medical treatment and there's a possibility that if you work on it alone, it'll be named after you. But if you work with it on a team, it won't be named after anyone, but it might be made faster and save lives more quickly and in that way save more lives. I think, unfortunately, there's a part of us that will want to go towards getting that recognition that this is my thing and I get to leave a legacy and it's named after me for all of history. And when we think of something being remembered after we are gone, well, you don't get to experience that. So if something in 200 years is remembered that I did it, of course, right now that feels good to me. But in 200 years, I won't be experiencing that. And so here's where we have another one of those limitations of being human in that, of course, when I think about the future, I try to imagine myself in the future, but I can only do it as me now. So when I think in 500 years from now, do I want them to think this was Fadid's theory of this and they talk about it? Of course, it feels good to think about them. I like, guess that's what I want and that's what I should strive towards. But if I think about why am I doing that or why is it that I want to come up with hopefully some, let's say, ideas or theories that help people? Well, it's the helping people part that has value, I would hope. It's the point that it's going to help others going forward in the future. And that part, I won't either, you know, I won't even be alive to experience if people are remembering it or not for me or for whoever it was. And so I should just hope the impact is more positive. So if you can make a medicine, yes, the feeling is you want it to be named after you. But if you do remember what the intention is, you might recognize it's more important to build something that's helping more people more quickly rather than for me to get the credit. And I think one of the ways I can understand this is that we have this sense of self, which is itself a whole topic and topic I've talked about many times before, and I won't go too down into the topic itself. But when we think about this sense of self, it could make sense to feel like I matter so much, I have to make sure I survive. From an evolutionary perspective, we can understand that this sense of self being so significant and important can make sense because it makes it more likely for me to take care of myself and survive and to want to pass on my genes and to be, you know, whatever else comes with that of seeing me as something. And so I think not only do we think about passing on our genes, we think on, about passing on our sense of self in some way, people remembering us or knowing us in some way. And so because of that, we get attached to this idea of how are, are people going to be saying my name or remembering me 200 years from now, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now. But again, if we now if you think of you're in heaven, well, if you think of some next world and it's like heaven, you probably won't care about if 
you know, people are talking about you or not. If you don't believe after you die, if you think you're just not, no longer conscious and that's just the end, well, if you think you're doing something good, just to do something good, it shouldn't matter how people remember you in the future. And so I think it's natural for us to have this tendency to want to be remembered in a particular way because, again, I have to think about it now. When I think, what is it like 500 years from now when people think of me? Of course, I'm going to have a feeling about it because I feel it now. But the reaction in 500 years, I won't be around to feel. Now, I can think, what do I think is a type of life people would be proud of or I would be proud of and I want to live that kind of life? That can make sense. And so sometimes people will say, well, imagine people are giving your eulogy. So when you die, what kind of things do they want, you want them to talk about you? Or work on those eulogy types of traits. You know, when people go to a um, funeral and they're talking about someone, they don't say, you know, we're, we're missing this person because they had so many nice cars and nice boats or they, you know, did this or they had this thing that was material. Usually it's about they were so kind, they were so loving, they did these things to help other people, they were a good person in this way. So in that way, I think it can make sense to think of how we will be remembered. But I think unfortunately people can get caught up in how they personally will get the credit for certain things and it actually gets in the way of us doing the right thing at times because we can be attached to that. We're not only attached to our sense of self in the present, we can be attached to our sense of self and how it's going to be remembered down the line, which is, I think, unfortunate. But so going back to the ways we leave our legacy, there's so many ways that we do that. But one of the ways I also think about is when someone dies, they're gone, but the way they made people feel in their lives around them in whatever way, that doesn't die. And that's another one of those are so many things, but that ripple throughout generations and throughout time. So when you think of loved ones, many people will say, oh, I have this grandfather myself. My grandmother passed away just five, six months ago. So physically, she's no longer here. But the way she made me feel, the things that she taught me, the way that she loved me, I still have that within me. I still carry that with me. And in that way, my relationship with her has not ended. She's not physically here. My relationship has not ended with her, and it won't until my last breath. And so when people think about sometimes, oh, it's crazy to think you're you know, talking to your loved one or you're in relationship, all of our relationships are happening in our own experience. Whether the person is there or not is kind of, I know it sounds strange, it's not really that important in the sense that, yes, you can't keep having new experiences with them, but the way you relate to someone does not just end because physically they are no longer here. And so we can also keep that in mind when we think of how do I want to live my life? What's the emotional legacy I want to leave around the people who, who I interact with or everyone who I interact with? And to me, I always think about that. If I can, while taking care of myself, making sure I'm okay, make the people around me feel better. And of course, I'm not always doing this uh, it's something I think aspirationally. But if I can make people feel better, why not do that and leave that impact and legacy? If I can be genuinely kind and compassionate to more people and leave a positive impact, don't I want that to be the ripple effect 
And no, it doesn't change the world. It doesn't save the world. I think it does have a small change in the world that we all can put. But I think it's another way we can think of our impact. Sometimes when we think, well, I want to live a meaningful life. I want to leave an impact on the world. And I'm all about leaving a significant impact, tapping into your unique gifts and abilities to share that with the world. As I talked about the art, uh, the war of art a few weeks ago, I hope you all do that. We all do that. But another way to think about that is I'm leaving an emotional legacy through my relationships, through my behaviors, through my actions. How can I make sure I leave a positive emotional legacy and the most positive that I possibly can? Because that's something that's very much in your power. And that legacy will continue after you die because, first of all, the people living will still have it. If you positively impact those people, they then, of course, will leave it to the people that are in the future generations and on and on, which has been happening. We've been leaving these impacts, but sometimes we're not aware of or we don't consider the impacts that we're having on the world. So we should remember that even when you're gone, what you do will leave a mark. And it's up to us to decide what type of mark, what type of emotional legacy we want to live and we want to leave. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So going into our last segment here, um, talking about life and death. And some people during the commercial break or someone had asked about losing loved ones and how we we deal with that. And it's um, it's supposed to be painful. It does hurt. Um, and as I mentioned, I think it was in the first segment that really grief and that pain that we feel, it's the price we pay to have meaningful relationships, relationships that we, we value. Really, you can't have anything that you value without some level of hurting if you would lose it. And this can bring up issues related to things like attachment. And I know that attachment is, it tends to be seen as a negative thing. And often it is. We can get attached to things that really have no value or meaning, especially we can get attached to physical objects and possessions. And that can be very harmful to us to have that type of attachment. And I'm not an expert on Buddhist thinking on attachment and non-attachment, but it is, I think, something to keep in mind. Now, when it comes to relationships as mammals or primates, we know that, and really, obviously, as human beings, to look at our own psychology, our own survival, we know that attachment is a part, a natural part of our survival and how we live and how we relate. And so even attachment and dependence can be looked at as these negative words, especially dependence. And it can mean a lot of things. Um, but really, we have to recognize that as human beings, we are social beings and we are dependent in the sense that we are at least interdependent with others. At, when you're a baby, you are completely dependent. But when you get um, older, you are still interdependent. And so unfortunately, sometimes people think, well, if being dependent is bad, and we think of it as being weak, they think, I'm so strong, I'm going to be so independent, I don't need anyone. I'm just, I don't need anybody. I don't want to be close to anybody. I want to be by myself all the time. And they think this is a sign of strength. 
But actually what this is coming from is this fear of getting hurt. It is not our healthiest state to be completely dependent and to be completely detached from other people. So unfortunately, we have some of these misnomers. Yes, you can be so dependent even as an adult that you don't take care of yourself in basic ways or you feel like you can't do anything without other people. So it's not to say dependency in all forms is good and healthy, but what I'm saying is recognizing that as human beings we are at some level dependent and that's just something we need to accept. And not only that, to recognize that we need to be attached to others starting in childhood, this is a part of our human survival or human psychology. So uh, a baby is dependent, we're born, we cannot take care of ourselves even really for several years when you think about it. And so um, when you look at ourselves, we have to attach to someone. And so attachment, this whole psychology, emotions, all the things that come with attachment, it's really to help um, preserve or to make survival more likely. So we feel that that's why the baby cries because it wants something. It needs that that feeling. And even we see that a baby, sadly, if you separate a baby from its mother, even in a lot of um, different types of uh, animals, if a baby does not get um, a response from its parents over time, it cries and cries and then it stops crying after a while, which is quite heartbreaking, but that's just because it learns that if I uh, there's no chance of survival, then I might as well not cry. Even I might be bringing um, some, uh, you know, unwanted attention. So the cries for help, the cries for wanting, and the feelings of attaching, that is something very natural and normal and human. And it's something that we need to survive. And of course, human beings, we have a very long period of being um, dependent or being we're born very altricial because our heads are so big and because we walk upright we're bipedal and walk on two legs because of that uh, we have to be born very altricial very helpless because of that it was actually interesting in this book he said something very poignant or something like our heads are so big that it makes childbirth again i'm not quoting it directly makes childbirth risky but it's also made those same big heads have allowed us to come up with ways to to help with childbirth as well to make it more safe over time through our you know medical advancements and understanding so we're born very dependent so because of that we have this whole system and of course the parents have to attach to the child too if the parent didn't care the child doesn't have a strong uh, chance of survival the likelihood of survival is really zero they need to be so committed and any new parent can uh, attest to that, that taking care of a baby is really a lot of work. If it wasn't for that love and that feeling in your own attachment, you also attach as a parent uh, in a way you're falling in love with your own child. If it wasn't for that attachment, you would, do you think you'd do that for anything or anyone else other than that feeling? So we can understand that type of psychological machinery that is in place there to make sure we create that attachment bond. Now, we still have that machinery as we get 
older and we still make those types of emotional connections and those emotional attachments. So yes, if you think of being attached to someone, it can sound very negative, but we also have to recognize that to be in a romantic relationship, you become attached to that other person. And I even think it's in place in smaller ways with people you're close to. So I don't think it's just one attachment relationship, but you can have definitely that stronger one. And so again, when you create this relationship, you are creating the space to get hurt that hurts so so deeply and the deeper you go or if we look at it like a mountain the higher you go in the mountain the fall further you can fall but also the way I think about it is the further you go up the more beautiful the view is and I think that analogy works very well when we think about relationships the closer you allow yourself to get to someone the more you allow yourself to love someone and for them to love you you do create this opportunity to get hurt more you're higher up on the mountain. If and when you fall, it's going to hurt a lot. It could feel like it's going to kill you. But also, because you allow yourself to take that risk, you can see this incredibly beautiful view. A view that you can never enjoy from the bottom of the mountain if you didn't take that risk. And so, as human beings, as these social beings, as emotionally attached beings, when we lose someone, it can feel incredibly painful. And actually, even depending on who it is, it can even feel like death. And this is why when people go through breakups or when someone that dies close to them, we can feel like I can't survive. And it's part of, you know, lots of poetry and love songs, but also a feeling that we can all relate to. It does feel that way. And it can make sense because if it's that same type of emotional machinery that's about survival, you feel like I can't survive with this person when you, when you lose them. And so when I think about death, and when I think of losing a loved one, to me, it should be sad. And I know for many people, when they, they hear that, sometimes people say, oh, no, you shouldn't be sad. Or the person who's died, depending on your belief of an afterlife, they think that you are making them sad by being sad. And there, there's some truth to that. And you're sad for you. You're not sad for them. You miss them. You know, most people, if they believe in an afterlife, it's usually a good place. So you think they're okay. Or if you don't believe in an afterlife, they're no longer there. You miss them. And so to me, it's very understandable. And it makes sense for us to actually be sad when someone has died, when we've lost someone. And how long you should be sad, how you could deal with that, that's a whole whole th bunch of things that we can talk about on another show, but it's understandable that you are sad. And the first thing is for you to give yourself that space. And if it's for loved ones, to give them that space to be sad as well. We unfortunately, or maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, but we can understand we have this tendency that when someone does not feel well, we should make them feel well. So if someone is sad, we have this almost it can feel like a pressure to make them feel good. This is something I think on Wednesday show I'm going to talk about. It's like a homeostatic bias or this just feeling we have that when something is off in the way it doesn't feel right, we want to make it right. If someone is sad, we have to make them happy. And this goes back to something I said earlier on the show about trust and mistrust and when a child's needs are met. But we have to recognize that it's okay to be sad. It's part of being human to be sad. And if you are not sad sometimes, 
that's something you are not expressing or experiencing and you're not experiencing life or you're not experiencing your emotions. So we have to accept this reality of life and reality of being human that what makes life beautiful, it's not necessarily that, you know, you have to be happy to feel the sadness, but really you have to be open to feeling to feel everything. And so if I don't make myself open to sadness, I'm not allowing myself to be open to happiness either. It's more to me in that sense that you don't have to have bad days to know what a good day is, but that you have to really be open to feeling in order to feel everything. Uh, the analogy I also like is to think of, okay, well, I don't want to be hurt. I'd rather be numb. And so if we take my arm and we put a bunch of anesthetics in it, I won't feel pain anymore. But you know what? I also can't feel uh, the loving touch of someone I care about. Or a massage doesn't feel good either. You can't feel that pleasure either. And so if we numb ourselves, we don't numb ourselves just of pain. We numb ourselves of all, all the experiences. And so for me, a good life, a meaningful life, isn't a constantly smiling, happy life. Going back to the theme of the book, it's living a meaningful life. You know, and really, if we think about how we only have a short amount of time, we don't know how long on this earth, to me, it's about living and having all the beautiful experiences that we can have. And one of the most beautiful and meaningful experiences we can have are the relationships that we have, which means to me, we should be creating the closest relationships we can have with those loved ones, the most emotionally intimate. Those are the beautiful experiences that we should be striving to create. And yes, with every beautiful experience you share with someone, it means that losing that relationship will feel even more painful if and when that day comes. I say if and when because you don't know you could be the one that dies or they could be the one that dies. We don't know. But when we look at our life, I think we would want to think, I want to live a life where the relationships are the most meaningful, are the closest that I can create, and I'll deal with the pain if and when it comes. To me, that's living a courageous life and living the best life. So to the individual who asked the question, I don't know if you are personally going through something that you were losing a loved one or feeling some kind of pain, but for all of us, and I myself am still feeling sad about my grandmother, it feels less sharp as it did five, six months ago, but I still can feel that pain and it hits me in different ways. Um, but I wish you the best in that journey. And I hope you can also hold on to the fact that if I'm feeling this pain, it also means I had the, the benefit and the pleasure and the experience of, of having someone I loved in my life. And that, I hope, is something that none of us regret, creating those loving relationships. So thank you for, for asking that question. Um, we are getting close to the end of the time today. It's the first time I did Instagram Live in a while, so I appreciate everyone who tuned in there as well and shared comments and hearts and all sorts of things. Uh, it's nice to be back on there, and of course, nice always to be here on the air. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm -hmm.